This week, the Catholic Primary Schools Management Association told the Oireachtas Committee on Education that just 1.2% of pupils in the Greater Dublin area were refused entry because of the so-called baptism barrier. Does this mean that the entire debate around the baptism barrier has been blown out of all proportion? Or do the figures disguise a far more fundamental problem about the role of choice in education? In studio this morning, Eanor Reardon is a Labour Party senator and former primary school teacher. And John Walsh is a lecturer in higher education and education policy in Trinity College, Dublin. But first this morning on the line, I'm going to talk to John Coulihan. He's Professor Emeritus of Education in Maynooth University and a According to a profile in the Irish Times, the man who knows more about education in Ireland than anyone else. So, John, no pressure this morning. Okay. (laughs) Now, look, I'm told you take a long view of education. And it seems to me that one way of interpreting our unusual system of primary school patronage is that the state has no interest in directly managing schools. And it kind of suits them to have private patrons competing with each other for the control of primary education. Is that a fair assessment? Well, it has been the reality, and it is over many, many generations. What we have in primary level is what's called a state-aided system. That's from the very beginning in 1831 when it was established. So it's a long history behind the idea of a state-aided system, whereby the state gives assistance to local agencies to run schools, essentially. And that has been the system which has by and large prevailed right into the current period, But the problem is that it created a structure of the education control system, which is now out of sync, out of harmony with the changing structure of our society. Mm. So what's afoot really is is a broad issue. It's not just a question of immediate business of a small number of oversubscribed schools. It's a broad national issue, which has to be addressed because it's not going to go away. And do you see any will in the department to change that system? Yes, I do. I do, in all seriousness. For the last number of ministers, there have, they've been addressing the issue, and Minister Quinn in particular, setting up the Forum for Pluralism and Patronage, but also Minister Bruton now with another scheme, and the senior civil servants have been addressing it and seeking to change the situation. But uh, to come back to your immediate question, I do not see an overall appetite of the state taking control of the schools mm and uh, taking ownership of the schools in that sense is more complex than that. So what they've been trying to do is use their good offices to change the structure. And they've been, in the forum on patronage, if I can go back to that, mm-hmm. we we had we, we, a lot of recommendations for change, some of which are happening, some of which are rather slow. But essentially there were three elements, if I could put it to you. One, we made proposals for areas where there was new population, where there was a new increasing population. And that's under control. The state is doing that very well. So where there are areas of new increased population, there'll be a different system devised with a greater plurality of school structures. That's going well. Another one is where there's a school standing on its own. We call it a standalone school where there's just it's out on its own, more or less. But where there are pockets of people who are attending the school, so we suggested changes in those schools as well, and to some extent they're happening. And the middle one then is the big one. That is where there's a stable population of towns where there's five or six schools, national schools. And what we were suggesting there was, at the, at the instigation of the church authorities, I may say, initially, they introduced the idea of divesting of some of those schools so that other um, parents would have opportunities. So we'd say if you were a town of five or six 
Catholic school denominational schools that you divest one or two uh, on the basis of demand and that was what we were encouraging as well but yeah. that's proving to be slower than we had hoped. Now on that so a survey was undertaken in 2013 um, in 38 towns I think what you've described. Yes. Towns where there was a stable population mm-hmm. so there would be no new school. Yeah. And I remember looking at the results of that survey and what struck me most was how few parents in each area actually responded to the survey. When they did reply the preferences were kind of divided between Gail, Scullina and Educate together. But so many people did not respond that I took that as an acceptance and a level of happiness with the status quo. They just didn't care enough to respond because they actually liked it the way it was. Is that something that should be taken into account? I wouldn't quite agree with your analysis. Right. Uh, I think that there were, in many of the areas in question, there were significant minorities of parents who um, made very clear what they wanted. To a large extent, Sarah, look at it like this. Education and schools at local level are things where tradition, loyalties, um, belief systems intertwine and people are familiar with their local school. It's been part of the way of life, their children going and coming and going and generations going to the school. So in those circumstances, the vast majority of ordinary people are comfortable enough with the way we've had it, etc. Uh, so it's likely that in those instances, parents aren't going to jump up, please take our school. And that's what proved to be the case, which we knew it would happen. Yeah. What it required was leadership from the church authorities and from local politicians to help parents to understand what is afoot and what other fellow citizens need, needed and that other fellow citizens need to exercise their rights for a different type of school. It didn't mean that the denomination schools were going to be ousted or closed down, but that some, as of 93% were Catholic, that 93% needed to be reduced to facilitate other, other, other citizens to exercise their rights. And I think the leadership there was lacking at both church and uh, or politician level to help local people because, to a large extent, people needed to be ousted from their comfort zone. It happened before when they changed small schools from the 60s to the 70s. It wasn't a religious issue. But there was a lot of opposition to the closure of small schools. Mm. But there was leadership to do it. And we ended up with... Closing 20,000 small schools, 2,000, excuse me, 2,000 small schools in 10 years. But the loyalties are very close, and I think myself, uh, a lot of people, if they understood the whole issues, would break away from the old moles and say, ah, yes, we've got to change a little bit. Is that loyalty a testament to the fact that people actually think that maybe the Catholic Church has done a pretty good job, and they're afraid that if a new system comes in, it won't be as good. And while they might not necessarily go along with teaching of sacraments in the classroom or think it's ideal, they're afraid that they might lose more by handing over control. I think there's a combination of fears there. I think that's true. And in many instances, the Catholic Church has done schools well and to parents' satisfaction. And I think also the Catholic Church has been changing in the ways it's been running schools. I think it has been showing more inclusiveness I think there are very good examples of that trying to accommodate non-believers and do their Mm. best to facilitate structures. But it's not sufficient. And other parents require something more um, direct and indeed international obligations to which we're affiliated to in the UN and so on about parents' rights have been, uh, uh, should we say, blaming us and saying you've got to do something better than what we've been doing. So the thing, I can understand people's allegiance, loyalties and traditions but sometimes they've got to be disturbed 
for the common good. And now just finally then, on the whole issue of choice, um, I'm going to quote Finland. And before I do, I want to acknowledge that it's not fair to quote specific aspects of particular school systems in another country because they come with whole cultural contexts, you know, and you can't just rip it out. But having said that, they do have this system of one school. So there's one state, not in denominational school in each area. And they had to close down a huge amount of small schools as well during a recession in the 90s and put everybody into the one school. And by removing choice, they actually improved vastly um, the outcomes and they went from the bottom to the top of the OECD league tables in terms of at least academic outcomes anyway. And they would argue that once you have an element of choice in a school system, be it geographic or religious or if it's economic by people being able to pay, the middle class will always leverage that system of choice to their own advantage. And you're better off having no choice. Now, personally, I think if we tried to introduce that here, there'd be a revolution. But... Do you think in an ideal world that would actually be the best system of all? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. There's a, you're quite right in your introduction. There's a lot of complex factors there about Finland. But nevertheless, to come back to your main point, uh, if it was a greenfield situation and we were planning now for the 21st century, we wouldn't be planning it the way we have it at all. Mm. It would be very, very different. But the political realities and certain legal realities that exist on the ground at this time from my point of view, I don't see any political will or cooperation from the level authorities for that kind of situation. You used the word uh, revolutionary radicalism. We, in our report, insofar as we tried to understand the, the historical and other aspects, social aspects of the whole thing, what we were going for was more incremental change, gradual change, where people would buy into the change, take a sense of ownership of it, and avoid social conflict. And the process is still ongoing. It's only five years since we did the report. We have a lot of recommendations in that. There's a lot of development taking place. For instance, a very important Rule 68 has been dropped by the minister in relation to religion permeating the whole school day. The NCCA has been forward something we're proposing, education about religion and beliefs. Many individual school principals are doing very good work. There's movement, but it's not still addressing fundamentally now, the new plan by Minister Bruton should help ease that forward as well through the agency of the ETBs, and we'll be looking for that. So in other words, it's a transitional, it's a changing situation. It isn't just black and white, but it's a bit more slow than we would wish. On the other hand, I don't see any appetite for a total radical revolutionary type change on the lines you talk about. Okay, we will leave it there. And that was John Coulihan, Professor Emeritus of Education in Maynooth University and former Chairman of the Forum and Patronage and Pluralism. And in studio with me now, as I said, is Eno Reardon, Labour Party Senator and former Primary School Principal and John Walsh, a lecturer in higher education in the School of Education in Trinity College, Dublin. John Walsh, I think... I suppose what's interesting is that this system was set up in order to protect religious minorities, both at the foundation of the state in order to protect the Protestant minority, but even going back further. Tell us where this all began. That's right, Sarah. The, I mean, the system was originally set up to protect religion. Uh, first and foremost, so the um, the British state in the in the eighteen hundreds sought to set up a system that would be at least in part non denominational, mm-hmm. that would have um, separate secular education uh, or, or unified secular education and separate religious instruction. That failed. 
because it didn't take account of social realities in Ireland. It was unacceptable to all of the major denominations. Um, and both the Catholic Church and the Protestant denominations wanted uh, religion to be a core part of the curriculum. And essentially the system that, that, that the Irish state inherited um, <coughs> is very much one which is based on an accommodation between uh, the Catholic Church, above all, and the British state in the late 1800s. So it is very much a, a structure that was set up in the Victorian era. And then that fed into the foundation of the Irish state and that the Protestant minority had to be protected. That's true. I mean, the Irish state was very happy with um, a what John Coulhan described rightly as a state-aided system rather than a state-provided system. Firstly, because it allowed um, the early Irish state to provide education quite cheaply. Um, and also because they were able to... Uh, the, the, uh, the, the central place of religion in the system in a very homogeneous society, uh, I, I suppose, allowed the Irish state to uh, protect the minority in a very minimalist way uh, by simply allowing uh, usually Church of Ireland or Presbyterian children to leave. There might be one or two kids in a school who weren't Catholic or one or two kids in a class who weren't Catholic. It was easy enough to allow them to leave uh, during religious instruction. But the, the, the protection was, 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 was fairly minimalist in the sense that it, there was no obligation to provide uh, necessarily for any protection for them beyond just allowing them to leave, beyond, beyond not allowing them to be, beyond ensuring they weren't indoctrinated, essentially. Um, so, Aina Reardon, that word indoctrination, um, and I've heard that used a lot, that it's not fair that children from non-Catholic families should have to go to a school where they have to listen to indoctrination. Now, you've obviously been a teacher in a Catholic national primary school. My Mm -hmm. own children are in one. Mm -hmm. And it is just curious, what is the actual nature of the indoctrination? (laughs) What was your experience in the classroom? Well, well, technically it goes through the entire day and technically you're supposed to teach every single subject through through the ethos of the school. So um, you should be doing maths and Irish and, and geography and history through through the ethos of the school. Um, you know, we start with a morning prayer, finishes with a prayer, you'd have prayer um, at various different instances through, through the day and then you'd have uh, sacraments as well, which was, you know, teachers in certain classes would spend a lot of time doing preparation for certain sacraments. So, But the parent body, in my experience, and I think... Many people would would agree with this that a lot of parents, if not the majority of parents, um, are comfortable with the situation. Um, they don't necessarily see the day to day interaction of the of the kids with the with the with the teacher and the uh, and the religious ethos. Sacraments for them are kind of a coming of, of age thing. So if you're doing your communion, for example, you're no longer an infant. If you're doing your confirmation, you're no longer a child. You're moving into into adolescence. So and there's a family celebration element to it as well. So. And it's also something that parents are comfortable with because they've been through the system themselves. They understand it. Um, that's not to say that in a changing Ireland, for, ver- for many different reasons, that we shouldn't analyse this and critique it. And you've mentioned the Finnish model, which is interesting because I visited Finland and I spoke to a lot of politicians there about the Finnish model. And it was a bit of an educational revolution that happened in Finland where they got everybody from different political backgrounds, centre-left, centre-right, far-right, far-left, to all come to the conclusion that equality would be the best central theme on which to build an education system on. Now, our education system is not built on that central theme or underpinning notion of equality. It's built on patronage and choice. They, their absolute belief is, is in 
is in um, is in equality, and it does mean restricted choice. You are not allowed to send mm. your child. There's mm. one school district and one school. Now you should see the school. It's a fantastic building, wonderful resources. It's kind of cross fertilization of backgrounds and and, and ideas and, and income backgrounds. And, and they closed all the rural schools. A lot of closing of of schools. The teachers all have masters uh, degrees. Um, there's no inspection, which I found interesting. The children attend school from six years of age, so there's a huge emphasis on on preschool and uh, in Finland. But they've all and there's absolutely no private education and and. Uh, fundraising, which I think some of your listeners might find fascinating, is banned. So there's none of this raffles and and fundraising for your local school because it's not necessary. It's not it's not needed. Now within that, <clears throat> I think in a, in a country which has always needed or felt the need for a level of social mobility in Ireland, there is a a kind of a, a feeling that walking past your your local school uh, gives a sense of maybe aspiration or ambition that that that, that a, a family has. Uh, and there's an element of that in Ireland, and it's very difficult to to analyse that as being, you know, a negative when somebody wants the best for their child. But what happens in a system based on choice is that it works for a certain cohort, but for those it doesn't work for, it really doesn't work for them. Uh, and our system perpetuates inequality, in my view. So, John Walsh, it's a bit like driving your own car versus public transport. You know, we like that feeling of control in our car, but if cars were banned and everybody had to use the bus or the train, we'd all be better off. You know, the political reality is that the vast majority of people like the system. They like being able to choose, I want my child to go here, you know, to this school, because for whatever reason, I think it's best. So we ain't going to have Finland, not because politicians are useless, but because they're <laughs> reflecting the will of the people. <laughs> you know? No, no. Uh... So, um, so with that in mind, to what extent should the preferences of the majority be thwarted to suit the minority? Well, I think it's important too, I suppose, going back to Finland, the key difference, as, as Aon said, Finland is very much a state-provided system uh, and it's based on a very different political culture and one which, to be blunt, put, puts a much higher value on equality uh, than, than Ireland does. So it would need a fundamental change in political culture to, to move to, to anything like the Finnish system. I work very closely with a colleague from Finland. Uh, she'd be keen to point out the Finnish system isn't perfect either, mm. uh, but it does, uh, in fairness, have very good outcomes and it does really value teacher autonomy. But um, I suppose to, to, to go back to your question, I think um, it's maybe just useful to look at the, the, the constitutional position yeah. uh, where the, um, the constitution places a lot of importance on the rights of parents. And in fact, it states that the, the family is the primary and natural educator of the child. Uh, and the state can't, uh, under, um, under Article uh, 42, the state can't, uh, the state is prohibited from designating a school or sending or, or, or forcing parents to attend a school in violation of their, 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 their preferences. So I suppose now the, the, the de facto outcome of that has been that we had a, a, an overwhel- a system which was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly managed and controlled uh, by the Catholic Church. Uh, and certainly... Um, you know, the state was run into difficulty if it attempted to interfere with the religious uh, views of a large section of the population. But you can also look at that the other way. Yeah. There, there is, it's, it's, it's really important in terms of, of equality that if you have a significant minority or you know, if you have a, a large number of parents who, um, for whatever reason, are seeking 
um, a non-denominational or a multi-denominational education for their children, there's a strong constitutional argument that they, ha- they, they have a right to secure that. Uh, I mean, within reason. That's not to say that the so, state should be setting up... Actually, Aon, yeah. given that, is it odd that no one has taken a case? If it's in the constitution that you can't be forced to have a particular education and yet you're an atheist and you don't want your kids going to a Catholic school, how come no one's taken a case? I don't know, but I do think that at the centre this is a constitutional question and I think um, people who might have a similar political dis, uh, point of view to myself are beginning to think that the constitutional question has to be addressed. I mean, the um, the constitution says the state shall provide for free primary school education. If we were to eliminate that word for, then the state would actually have to provide uh, free primary education. And that means... Uh, essentially, apart from the patronage issue, for example, that the state would have to involve itself in the day-to-day running of schools, including such things as free books, including such things as free transport, as they have in Northern Ireland. So, and this is the reason why the Department of Education will will chase um, women through various different courses at European level, because they are absolutely adamant that they do not have a role in the day-to-day management and running of schools. They are quite happy for patron bodies to take it on. So when parents are wondering why they have to dig deep into their pockets for, for, for various different items that they have to pay for in school, that's the reason, because the state is not taking responsibility for it. Now... Um, I come from 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 a point of view that I don't like stepping back from this. Mm. And let's we let's say we had a as John was saying there earlier on, on the piece, if you had a white piece of paper as to how to construct your education system, would you say that there it, it is reasonable to separate children age four on the basis of one religion and two gender? And I think you would probably come to the conclusion that there would need to be a better reason to separate children. Uh, than, than religion or gender. Because um, the gender issue also feeds into this. Why are we separating children on the basis of gender? Why is this more pronounced at second level? Why are, why are parents absolutely and, and, convinced and that it's I, better for their, for their students when it does lead to gender stereotypes and, uh, and all the and rest? And we should it. insert in there Gale skull and why separate them on the basis of language too. Mm-hmm. Um, now, does that issue, <clears throat> even of fundraising, go back to an Irish political and social culture that people might prefer to pay lower taxes because they're happy to fundraise for their own school and keep their own school in books and musical instruments and things like that. Mm -hmm. And if that system was abolished and we all had to pay more money to properly resource all schools... Well, that see, isn't the kind of thing we're, that maybe we're now we're getting into like. political culture. I mean, I, I, there's a famous story of Manchester United trying to find the best pitch that could roll out in Old Trafford, and they actually found the best pitch they could find in Australia, and they bought it, they rolled it up, uh, they shipped it back to Manchester, and they rolled it out again. And guess what? It was the worst pitch they could possibly have found because the sunshine in Manchester is an awful lot different than the sunshine in Australia. Point being that the climate in which you operate is going to yeah. be key to how you roll out your uh, uh, your system. So we can't take the Finnish model without maybe having people a fundamental understanding of uh, of tax versus spend, markets versus state. If you had somebody from a Nordic country coming to Ireland and, and they saw somebody outside of football match, fundraising for the local hospital or school, they would think it's mad because that's what taxes are for. That's what taxes do. 
But I suppose we are accustomed to um, to a type of system where I'm sending my child to this school. This school has more resources. Actually, the parent body are uh, might be more affluent. They can dig into their own private resources, and therefore my child uh, will do better. And that's fine if you're in, in that school and you feel that your child is going to benefit. But society doesn't benefit. Mm-hmm. But how do you convince the entirety of the population that um, because they're winning the race? That's not best for everybody, exactly. uh, and that's it. Does take a, a little bit of maybe um, political leadership, but I, I think if we were to step back from it a little bit and not browbeat browbeat people into into the uh, into thinking that it, they're the problem, um, that we might have a better system. I just feel that in every community, I think a lot of people listening would, would possibly agree with me. There is always a school which has a disproportionate number of, of migrants, of travellers, of, of children with special needs. And do you acknowledge that often that school is the Catholic-run National Primary School? No, I don't. In, in a lot of areas? No, I Thanks. don't. No, I don't. I'm particularly thinking about second level. Oh, right. Okay. And I'm particularly... Uh, and if you're in those schools, because the, the, the inequality really at second level is more pronounced... If, if if you go into that school, you can smell the desperation from the kids, from the teachers, from the parents. And it's just not fair. But we're willing to allow that situation to continue in order to allow the advantaged schools to continue. At, at, at primary school, it's different. It's a different atmosphere. It's a different feeling. Uh, parents get an awful lot more discerning when it comes to second level. Yeah, that's true. A uh, couple of your texts. Separate schools and religion completely. Is there a difference between Catholic maths, Protestant maths or Islamic maths? That's from Stephen Donegal. <laughs> well, I think the Islamic Three scholars in the would admit they, they invented maths. So, um, And then someone else says, you're missing the point saying it does little harm. For example, kids with illnesses can grow up relatively fine. This doesn't mean we purposefully make them ill. We might as well be teaching kids about fairies and homeopathy. They can use the schools for indoctrination on Sundays. Now, the homeopaths will be in, uh, given out about what's wrong with them. Uh, would we tolerate talk of accommodating non-believers in the health system? Why is education different? There are many baptised children that have been refused entry to as there aren't places for them. And that appears as the um, Catholic Primary Schools Management Association were saying is cases in particular areas, particularly in Dublin, where there's a shortage of places. Now, Alan in Dublin says, what about taxpayers paying the salaries of teachers in private schools, schools that exclude certain students based on how much money they don't have, subsidising the rich to stay apart from regular folk? And of course, that came in because the Protestant minority needed to have yeah. their private boarding schools, and yeah. that's why they were subsidised. But then if you were subsidising the Protestant private schools, well, then you had to subsidise the Catholic but private schools. But they don't get capitation? Um, and there is an argument, although I have sympathy for this point of view, uh, there is an argument that on a practical level, if you were to withdraw that funding uh, for the teacher's salaries, you would then move all those uh, fee-paying schools into, into the state system. And that would mean it would actually cost the exchequer more because when they want their, their, their buildings done or their toilets fixed or all the rest of it, the, the state doesn't cough up and they don't get capitation per, a capitation payment, payment per pupil. So it actually could, it could, could cost more. Mm. So what we did do, and uh, speaking just politically for a second, um, in the last government we did in- increase the pupil-teacher ratio in, in fee-paying schools disproportionately with the rest of the system. 
now and an English teacher has texted in the education system is one of the few things in Ireland that works fairly well in contrast say to health or the Gardaí topical at the moment we are now beginning to mess it up for example the new English course for the new junior shirt is a total disaster Ireland is not Finland and to be fair I think we're all making that point that you can't just Mm -hmm. take a Finnish system and stick it into Ireland now but on the line is Joanna Fortune she's a psychologist and columnist with the Sunday Times good morning Joanna good morning Sarah how are you I'm very well thank you and now a lot of people People are wondering if you're the child of the non-Catholic family in the class and they do the little prayer in the morning and bless us, oh God, as we sit together before lunch. And then there's the sacramental teaching, obviously. Does it do any actual harm? Or are children capable of compartmentalising things like that? Yeah, and I think, Sarah, that's such a good question, but it really depends on the age of the child that we're talking about. And in terms of, you know, when I'm talking about age, I'm generally speaking about developmental age rather than chronological, because that's going to vary child to child. What we do see is that it's not religion that causes the damage to the child, but it's if that religious ethos is incongruent with the ethos of the family, and that sends a mixed or confused message to the child that they're being taught one thing in school about how people should live and what quantifies good and bad and good and evil and all of those concepts, and at home, it's something else. Does that then bring to the child, oh, are my mum and dad not good because we don't go to mass or they don't believe in God or we believe in a different God or whatever the thought process might be? So it's not religion causes the damage, it's the incongruence and the the linked confusion that can do. But it is directly linked to the developmental stage of the child. I mean, there's a couple of ways of looking at it, and I've been listening to your discussion with real interest there that, you know, there are four basic elements of all religion. We we, we really end up talking in this context a lot about Catholicism only because of the large monopoly Catholic Mm -hmm. patronage has on primary schools in Ireland. But really it could apply to any other religion if, if the tables were reversed. In religion, basic elements that I would see can broadly correlate to stages of intellectual growth in children. So every religion has a God concept. Every religion has symbols that they make use of. Every religion has a set of rituals that they follow and uphold. And ultimately, every religion is underpinned by a theology. But if you link those principles to child development, and this is where you see how does this affect children or not, is that by 12 to 18 months old, um, a child has attained the concept of permanency that even if they don't see somebody, they can still exist. So when you link that back to a principle of religion, that every every religion has some kind of God concept, of course a child can hold in mind that a God they can't see could still exist because they have what we call people permanency, which for children initially is if mum and dad leave a room, they still exist if I don't see them. By the age of two, um, they're attaining symbolic function. And we see this really simply. If you put them at a dinner table, they'll take the salt and pepper in front of them and move them across the table and call them cars. They have attained a symbolic function, which also correlates with every religion making use of symbols. Um, It's later on by the age of seven, which we commonly call the age of reason, that we see children can follow rules and create rituals of their own, often initially around their own routines about bedtime or how they approach getting dressed or how they go to school. You know, they have little rituals that they follow of their own. And again, then that would fit neatly in with religious rituals. But it takes us until we're in our adolescence to attain the mental ability to think in abstractions, create ideals or notions that are contrary to fact. So in adolescence, we begin to take what thus far we've been told is fact and we go, "Mm, is it? 
Could it be something else? What if? And I wonder if that. So it actually takes quite a while for children to be able to really question from their own mindset, is this real? Is this valid? So children are very susceptible to whatever they're being taught in those early childhood years. Now, maybe... My children, my children are particularly oppositional, I think is the technical <laughs> term that you might use. <laughs> but um, when it came to First Communion, my second child uh, called me aside and said, Mammy, I have something to tell you. And I said, all right, um, I don't think I should get my communion. All right, why is that? Um, I don't believe in God. Oh, I see. Why don't you believe in God? Because if there was a God, he wouldn't have allowed Hitler to be born. And I yeah. said, yes, problem of evil. Um, entirely legitimate criticism of uh, monotheism. So, uh, so we decided we discussed it, and I said, "Look, I don't." Near your house, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, my older son is much more compliant. Um, it, it's not all is not lost. Yeah. And Teach philosophy as well as religion and schools. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Funny, I got them together because one of them really did believe in the whole thing, and I said, "Now we're going to discuss this without insulting each other." In a minute, they were calling each other idiots, but we did work it out <laughs> in the end. And um, I said to my son, "Look." I'm not asking you to believe in any of this. What you might just want to think about is it's much easier to opt back in later. If you go along with this now, then you never need stand in a church or get married or have funerals or baptisms or anything like that yourself. But you'll give yourself more choices if you just go along with it now in the future. So he said, right, OK. And he decided that he would go along with it. And now he's getting his confirmation and I'm one of the parent leaders in the um, uh, parent-pupil leg of the instruction. And I am so impressed with the maturity of the kids in that because they're talking about choices and are they really choosing it? And are they only doing it to please their parents? And they're really clued in into how they're part of the system and they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and some of them are grand with it. So... It made me actually much more confident in their resilience in this system and actually teaching them kind of coping mechanisms for other choices that they know they don't really have when people are telling them that they have choices. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, Sarah. And I think what you're highlighting is that, you know, and there's very limited research in this area, by the way, but the research that is there does show small but um, some significant difference in terms of the pro-social behaviour links to um, having some religious faith um, as part of education. I think also what you're highlighting very well is that there is an assumption that amongst a lot of adults that, oh, sure, look, it's all going over the kids' heads. They're not really paying attention. That's not true. And children certainly are listening to the stories and the narratives, and that fits, especially at communion age, developmentally, with how important narrative is to development. So absolutely, they're listening and they're trying to make sense and pick up the holes in it. And, you know, I mean, I would never describe myself as oppositional, but I know that my mother is is probably listening (laughs) and would be only too keen to tell you that I also didn't want to make my first confession when I was the same age because I didn't think it made sense that I would have to say sorry for something if God forgave us all anyway. Yeah. So I couldn't make sense of it and therefore was like, well, I don't think I'm going to do it. So, you know, children can do that. And I suppose what I would like to really get across with this is that instead of, you know, the, the discourse around religion and its role in schools and particularly Catholic patronage in Ireland, inst- let's not trash it. Let's look at transforming it. I mean, earlier on, you were talking very clearly about how uh, re- the 
role of religion in schools really stemmed from protecting and upholding minority religions. And now that the landscape in Ireland has changed and, you know, there's no question that developmentally children will do best if they are taught about the world religions in the same way that they're taught about world history, world mythology, world culture. It's really only an issue when we have mandated the practice of any one religion um, or that we insist that that religion be taught as a truth. That's when things become fraught between family and state, between family and church. That's when we see those incongruences, those confusions, those mixed messages come up. But of course, parents have a right to bring up their children in a chosen faith, and that's guaranteed under human rights law. It's politically untouchable. But then we have to look at should that be done in schools? Or is that the role of the family at home? Okay, so just finally then, so like someone has texted in, why do we tell four-year-olds about Christ nailed to the cross and yeah. show pictures of this? Is this really an image we want in their heads? Now, I think they're seeing a lot, lot worse on the news than that. But anyway, my daughter came home asking me questions about it. So let's say you don't believe you've had to send your child to the local Catholic school because that's just the way it is. How should you handle it if they come home saying, but teacher says there's a God and you say there isn't? Yeah, I think, you know, and parents, this is something that comes up a lot. I hear this a lot is that I would really say I believe it's much more important to teach children how to think rather than what to think. So if your child comes home and says, my teacher says today that this is what has happened, and you say, okay, rather than say, well, teacher's wrong and she shouldn't be telling you or he shouldn't be telling you that I'm going into the school tomorrow to sort that out, (laughs) you know, and fight every battle, I would say that's really interesting. And yes, some people do believe that. And some people believe something else. And it's really important to me that you make up your own mind. Yeah. And I think it's really about keeping the lines of communication open because indoctrination is a word that's come up quite a lot this morning, but indoctrination works two ways. You can indoctrinate a child politically, culturally, and in religion, but equally you can indoctrinate a child against religion. So, I mean, indoctrination is simply a process of teaching somebody or a group of people to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. And it's that word uncritically that is the jarring issue, that we've got to encourage critical thinking in our children, because that's going to help them question a lot more beyond religion that we really, in today's society, need them to do. And that's why I think I would invest in, you know, teaching them how to think rather than what to think. Um, And that comes down to respect and tolerance. And that cannot be academically thought in schools. That has to permeate the school environment. Brilliant. Joanna, we have to leave it there. Thanks a million for joining us this morning. That's Joanna Fortune, psychologist and Sunday Times columnist. So, John Walsh, so I guess it goes back to this issue of tolerance. Is it a question that the majority must change you know, to, in order to make things better for the minority? Or does the minority need to be tolerant of the majority? I think going back to what Joanna said, um, I think she hit the nail on the head when she said that the landscape has been transformed. And we have a system that was designed 150 years ago uh, when there was a very clear and overwhelming majority and, you know, maybe some small minorities. It's now a much more diverse and uh, pluralist society. Uh, I mean, I I think most primary schools um, do 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 attempt to be inclusive. I I, I know a primary school in my own area in Blanchestown, which has 44 separate nationalities. That's a Catholic primary school. But it does put teachers in a very difficult position in that they're they're dealing with large, large numbers of, of kids, say, in a school that's technically of a particular religious denomination, and those children have diametrically different 
beliefs or their parents have very different beliefs. And that's where you get to the problem that Joanna identified, which is a conflict between the ethos of the school and the ethos of the home, or where teachers effectively end up not teaching religion and using religion class for, for other subjects. So it does. I think teachers are, are absolutely are, are trying very hard to be inclusive and in many cases succeeding, but they're not being well served by, by a system which is out of sync with the times. And it's very much a system which was created in the Victorian era for a society that was over 90% Catholic. Um, and it's now, uh, like it's now, uh, I, I think in many ways, um, that the landscape has been transformed uh, and the system is fundamentally inconsistent with the kind of society we have. Aon, what's your response to that question? How far should the majority go to accommodate the minority? Well, I, I think in any of these things that we try to campaign for in terms of social change, we have to convince the majority that, that the majority will benefit. I mean, when you analyse the religious instruction at primary school, a lot of time is, is spent on it. It's, it's two and a half hours a week. That's not including um, the sacrament preparation, which can overwhelm certain classes, uh, and let's be honest about it. And then there's other... Issues that arise, for example, when I was Minister for Equality, I was trying to amend Section 37 of the Employment Equality Act, which is essentially a provision which allows allows schools to discriminate against teachers uh, on the uh, on the basis that they may undermine the ethos of the school, which meant that LGBT teachers or or teachers who who, who weren't uh, mar- or unmarried parents or or or, or, or living. Uh, in situations that are not in in, in, sync. in sync with the um, <laughs> with the with the religious ethos of the school would have their employment prospects uh, hampered. We couldn't delete that section of, of of the Employment Equality Act because of the constitutional provision. So we could only amend it to make the bar so high for the school to take a case against the teacher that it would almost be ridiculous. But but that did only until last year was a real issue for for LGBT teachers in your average normal uh, parish school. So it, I suppose it's not an issue until it becomes an issue. Um, and I would again go back to the point that look if we're trying to find a reason as to why we should separate children and trying to find a reason as to why we need to uh, have a multiple a, a multitude of schools we have 4,000 schools in the country size of the population of Manchester is religion really uh, the most important aspect of the governance of schools I would contend that it isn't uh, and I would also contend that individual churches would possibly achieve more and uh, and um, progress more if the school community, or sorry, if the, if the church community and the parents and the and, and the children were doing it together outside of the yeah. uh, of the classroom, because I think there can be a a sense that uh, children are being instructed in something um, that. Sure, really most of them have no interest in it. Yeah, they don't have... A, so the parents would, don't go to mass They would have like a that. They would have yeah. a greater interest in it if it was coming from the home. They would. Now, someone texted in to me saying, no, the Islamic scholars did not invent mathematics. That was the Chinese. I suggested to John, here in studio, did the Babylonians invent zero? And he said, yes, but they were pagans. So I think we can say there's a non-denominational <laughs> contribution to maths. And I'm very sorry for overcrediting one particular uh, religion uh, with their contribution to maths. Brian in Dublin says, it's all balderdash. Most of my friends were brought up in the Catholic ethos. I'm 60 and very many have rejected what they were taught, uh, which I feel is a pity, but they are not damaged and neither am I. Well, you see, that's the thing. Is it actually damaging? And then someone else says the majority are mostly passive and unlikely to work for their religion. And actually, John Walsh, that is the huge issue that I see, is that most parents 
it's not that they particularly want a religious education, but if there is any suggestion, and this pops up on Liveline sometimes, if you don't bring your child to Mass, then don't get the communion. If you don't bring your child to Mass, then don't get your confirmation. We don't actually want you. And then they go berserk because they don't want to be cut out of it. (laughs) They don't want to have to do it themselves. They want the priest to do it. They want the schools to do it. They don't want to have to go along to meetings on Mondays and Tuesday nights and actually do this. They don't want to go to Mass. But God help the priest who says, fine, then you're not getting it. Yeah. No, I think... I think the well, I think, I think there's, maybe, there's probably two things here. I mean, the yeah. first thing is there's the, a lot of things. The first there. thing, there's a lot of things. There's a lot yeah. of things run, to do run with there, Sarah. There, John, for me, there. Go yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first thing parents look for in a school yeah. is not whether it teaches religion or not, yeah. but whether you know they're happy with the quality of the school. And then, secondly, which is I think that the, the the question or one of the questions <laughs> you're raising there uh, is parents want their child to be included. They don't want their child to be left out. And it's not about religion. It's about ensuring the child isn't left on the sidelines, you know, uh, isn't the only one not doing a particular ceremony or a particular thing. And that's perfectly understandable. And in your experience, how do you think the schools do in not leaving kids out when they're not getting those sacraments? Uh, I think it varies. But I I think in in some urban areas where Dublin 15 is a very high international population, I go back to that just because I happen to live there. But um, I think um, some schools where there's, it may be technically a Catholic school, but there's a large, um, I suppose, Muslim or or, or uh, non-Catholic population who won't be doing the sacraments. They become quite practiced at developing uh, plays or kind of community festivals for uh, as an alternative focus for children rather than uh, rather than the religious ceremony. But it does put teachers in a very difficult position, and in a sense, teachers are left on the front line in a way to deal with a, a, a system that's fundamentally out of date and where the structure isn't really fit for purpose. The structure of the system of patronage isn't really fit for purpose. But many teachers in schools do their do their absolute best to, to be inclusive. Sure. Yeah, and I see in schools where they'll have international days yeah. and um, say the, the non-Christian uh, pupils are invited to stand up and explain their religion yeah. and things like that. I mean, and, uh, primary schools in Ireland are wonderful places and I miss um, absolute teaching yeah. hugely. I really mm. do. I miss, I miss it a lot. And uh, as often as I possibly can, I find my myself in a in in a in a in a primary school especially in my constituency because they're just so colorful they're so warm and and teachers always find a way but i think the the, the broader um question here is about the relationship between the state and the running of schools mm-hmm. okay that's one thing and then the, the patronage issue obviously falls into that as well so one is about um you know religion and the and the influence of religion over education and how uh, inclusive that makes our our school system and the second is how that leads to inequality and uh, an equality experience for children in the system. And they're interlinked and they're interwoven. And I think at the, at the core of the issue is, is this constitutional provision. Um, I think though, Does it if, need a referendum? I actually think it does. I think it does. And if you have a referendum, it would be a 10, 15 year campaign. And I think over the course of the 10, 15 year campaign, we would need to explain um, you know, with a fulsome heart to everybody in the country as to the reason for this. Because if you have a system that benefits a, 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 you know, a, a proportion of people uh, who don't see any issue with it, but the same system is really hurting those who are not getting the same advantage uh, from it, um, from, from a socioeconomic point of view, as opposed to a religious one, uh, then we really need to ha- start looking at changing it. 
I might just leave it there then, so for today. Um, Senator Aon Arudin from the Labour Party and former primary school principal and John Walsh, thanks a million for joining me. Thanks to Stephen Jordan, Aidan McKelvey and Marion Kennedy and thank you for listening.